I want to share a thought with you before we even venture into the text this evening. As I think through revival and what we often expect in times like this, gathering together for a week, um, growing up sort of in a culture that there was an expectation that came along with meeting at revival. And the expectation was that there were going to be some that would come to the altar and that some people would come to faith in Christ or whatever it may be by the cords, and if didn't, then it may not have been a successful event. I want you to know in recent days, five to eight years ago, God began to work in my heart because there was a pride about me as a speaker. I thought, God, nobody responded. Nobody came forward. Maybe it's my style of invitation. Maybe it's the way I invite people to um, embrace the gospel. But then I began to read the invitations of Jesus. And I began to look at the scriptures at how people responded to his invitation. And let's just say that he did not have a whole lot of folks to immediately respond to his preaching. Luke 9, 23, Jesus says, If any man desires to come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. The cross was a place of death. It was painful. The reader and the listener knew what Jesus was saying. There were times that many would be following Jesus and he would turn around and look at them and say, if you want to follow me, eat my flesh and drink my blood. He's not talking about cannibalism. He's speaking of embracing the life of Christ, one in which you may not have a place to lay your head. And I thought, my invitations must not be so bad. Because the words of Christ and the invitation to the kingdom were difficult. It was by grace that people came into the kingdom, I shall admit. But I want you to know that the fruitfulness of the Word of God and, if you will, the fruitfulness of us gathering together for a week is not in how many respond by walking down the altar. It's in how many people live a life of the gospel afterwards. I've sat across many people that prayed to receive Jesus. And in the words of D.L. Moody, they were my converts, but they were not God's. D.L. Moody, once coming out of an event, somebody approached him and said, you know, I saw, one of your con- I saw a convert of yours on the side of the road drunk. He said, you're right, my friend. He was one of my converts, but not one of God's. You see, the fruitfulness in a revival or a Bible conference or gathering together around the Word is in how we respond to the Word on the long haul. As my uncle would say, the proof is in the pudding. Amen? When you come to gather around the Word of God, let your expectation be, God, peer into my soul, into my heart, I desire to respond 
to your word in a way that I experience the fullness of who Christ is. Don't have some large expectation of the aisles being filled. Have an expectation that the world is transformed because we live differently having been altered by the gospel. Philippians chapter 3. I want to look this evening at verses 1 through 11. If you would stand with me as we read this challenging yet beautiful text. Philippians chapter 3. The apostle writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious. It's not troublesome. But for you it is safe or necessary. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for evil workers. Watch out for the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed also, I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as unspeakable filth, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Verse 9, Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Father, we are grateful this evening that we once again can gather together, sing your praises, and listen to your scriptures. And I pray that we would take the sacred text and embrace it with our lives, that we may live for the glory of God, and we may experience pleasure and intimacy and satisfaction in Christ. God, I pray tonight that we would experience an upfront, face-to-face confrontation with the beauty and the glory of who Jesus Christ is and how supremely valuable He is. And may our lives be altered by hearing your word illuminated through your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to preach on this thought this evening, the supreme value of knowing Christ. The supreme value of knowing Christ. We all have things matters in our life that take um, precedence to us. We have items of value. We prize particular things in our life, whether it be material or whether it be family, whatever it may be, we value particular things. Some of us, it may be that we value our church. We may value 
our vehicles. I remember a time in my life that I valued a particular vehicle, so much so that I would go wash that beautiful little Ford Ranger up. Man, I bought it with my own money, and I would um, start walking towards the building in advance auto parts, and I would look back and think, man, mm, that thing is nice. And I thought, wow, I, I'm just, I love, I love nice vehicles. Well, it wasn't long after that. I was driving my first day to college at Adamance Community College. I thought I was, I was the stuff. Had my new vehicle, headed to my first day at college. Man, this is great. Didn't even get past my house and about hit a lady head on and destroyed my truck. You see, after that point, vehicles became really a non-issue to me. I don't even wash mine now because I'm just, I figure for me to wash a vehicle is dangerous. I valued it. In fact, I valued it so much that it took the most of my attention. You see, what we value in life is what we place our attention on. It's what we place our focus on. It's what we place our um, time, money, resources, and our, if you will, our energies on that thing that's very valuable. I believe that we as believers are, if you will, facing a crisis in our personal lives, which in essence affects the life of the church. We have misplaced values. We have misplaced our attention, our passion, our interest, our finances, and our resources. I, be I believe personally that what God has given the church in many cases to be used to build the kingdom and to reach the nations and to fulfill His mission, we have wasted our resources, we've wasted our energy, we've wasted our education on things that don't matter in eternity, but they only matter here and now. When they're gone, they'll be gone. We have misplaced values. In fact, the reason we need and have revival and the reason that we need an awakening is because we've misplaced our passions. We have bought lock, stock, and barrel the American dream in such a way that it drives us every day of our life. Spending about 10 years in student ministry, I call it young adult ministry because they're not kids anymore, and we need to treat them like young adults. But living or serving that long in that particular area if it's anything I learned, I learned this. That many parents are training their children to suck the life out of the resources that God's given them for their own interest. They're teaching them to go to college, make a good living, have a retirement, build a big house, have boats, have cars, have everything you want, live, enjoy, and die, and then go to heaven. We, we're training practical atheists as if God doesn't exist and His purpose don't matter. I don't even know why we even consider the gospel to be true if it doesn't drive our lives. We have misplaced values. And we need to be woke up. We need to be shaken. We need to begin to realize that what God has given us is for the building up of the kingdom of God to be laid at the feet of the king to be used absolutely for his purposes 
and not for our own endeavors. You see, the Apostle Paul's battling selfish endeavors. He has a group of believers that in some way have lost their focus. They have misplaced values in some particular way. And so he's writing to them to exhort them that they need to be aware of the surrounding culture. They need to be aware of religious practices that distract from the gospel rather than point towards the kingdom of God. He's realizing that these selfish endeavors consume, distract, and eventually it will destroy. And so I believe in this particular text what we encounter is the Apostle Paul having already spoken to the church a word of thanksgiving, having already told them in Philippians chapter 1 that he was thankful for their partnership in the gospel, and he's laid out to them that their main passion, their single focus, their single desire should be the gospel, and then in chapter 2 saying that you don't need to consider your own things, but you need to humble yourself, be unified for the gospel, and move on for the kingdom. And then he lays out, and it was very hard for me to, to just go to chapter 3. Because in chapter 2 of Philippians, we have this supreme example of absolute humility for the purpose of the gospel, and it's found in Jesus Christ. You see, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, Paul is using Jesus in context as the supreme example of someone who laid his life down for someone else. I mean, we think we're something. Don't we? I think I am oftentimes. Man, I think I'm something. Right? But Jesus was something. And yet he willingly stepped out of heaven, enjoying what he could have enjoyed for eternity. And he said, for a period of time, I'm going to set aside some of this. And I'm going to become a servant of man. And I'm going to live a life of pain, a life of rejection by the people I created I'm going to live in their midst, wash their feet, serve them, and then I'm going to lay down my life so that they can know what it's like to be in relationship with the living God. And so he's the supreme example in Philippians 2, 5 through 11 of someone who thought about someone else's interest above their own. You see, it wouldn't have been wrong, nor would it have been sin for Jesus to sit in heaven and say, forget that crazy crowd. Let them die and go to hell. He could have done that and been as righteous then as he is now. But he chose to humble himself and become a servant of man, to die for you and me. The supreme example of humility is Jesus Christ. And then Paul uses Epaphroditus, he uses Timothy, and he's setting all these men up as examples, Jesus being the premier example of what it looks like to set aside our own interest and to pursue the interest of others for the purpose of the kingdom of God and the glory of God. I'm convinced in my life, and I'm convinced in the life of the typical American believer, that what we do with Christianity is routine, it's selfish, and we're concerned about our own interest and not the interest of the kingdom of God. And what we need is a refocusing of our values. And I believe the Apostle Paul gives us an inside into what ought to be the most valuable person, the most valuable focus of our lives. And he gives us that in Philippians 3, 1 through 11. 
I believe that what we're about to encounter and look at is, is Paul speaking from his heart, from his experience, led through the Spirit of God as he pens this beautiful letter. And I think what he's, I know what he's doing is he's exalting the Lord Jesus Christ as being so supremely beautiful and so supremely glorious that nothing compares to the supreme value of knowing Jesus Christ intimately. So I want you to know something, that when we look at Philippians 3, 1 through 11, we are looking at a man who's been religious, who's been educated, who's had everything in the world that a man could want, and he knows none of that matters except for knowing Christ. And by the way, just so we can get our terms straight, when I say the supreme value of knowing Jesus, it doesn't mean an intellectual knowledge. It means an experiential knowledge. Uh, let me use an example. I went to Alamance Community College to do and to learn to learn heating and air conditioning. And I, I'll never forget, at the end of my tenure there at Alamance Community College, I'd learned all this stuff. I mean, I learned how to fix stuff. I learned how to do all these formulas, none of which I can remember today. I remember how to make, you know, form sheet metal. Oh, man, I came out. I was ready. And so we had to work a job in order to be able um, to graduate. I mean, we had to do that just as part of our training. And so when I came out, I said, well, I'm going to go find a job that they'll hire me, and then I can get my education, finish my education, and work for this company. And so I remember turning my application in, and I'll never forget, as soon as I gave it to the receptionist, she said, well, let me get Greg Whitaker. He's, um, he's the um, service manager, and I'll get him to come up here. So she gives the application to him. Greg comes right up, and I remember him standing behind his glass. And he says, hey, Joel, how are you? My name's Greg. He said, so are you ready to go on a truck? Absolutely, man. Give me that thing. I'm ready to go. I am ready to do service calls. He said, well, I'll tell you what. We'll let you ride with somebody for three months. You see, what Greg realized, I didn't realize. I had it here, but it won't here. I probably would have burned somebody's house down. You see, I didn't have the experience of working in the field. I just had head knowledge. I believe that we encounter a lot of people, have a lot of head knowledge about Jesus, but never seen him for who he is, and they've never tasted of his beauty, and they've never embraced him and experienced this glorious and beautiful Savior that wrecks your life and then uses it for his glory. I believe the Apostle Paul was a man who didn't just know Jesus here. This man had experienced a reckoning in his life, and then his letters, he's writing it out for the world to see the beauty of Christ and exulting, rejoicing in that this Savior is worth it for me. And so let's look at how this occurs. How, I mean, what is it about the supreme value of knowing Christ? What's, what, what, am, what am I to see from this text if I'm going to experience what Paul experienced? Well, the first thing I, I believe we need to observe is that having a supreme knowledge of Christ or experiencing Jesus, having, if you will, true saving faith. I, 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 a subtitle for this sermon I put on here was Paul is a model of true saving faith. What, is, what does true saving faith look like? Well, I think Paul gives us right here in the first um, couple of verses in 2 through 7, I think he makes this point. True saving faith or supreme knowledge of Christ experientially involves the abandonment, listen, involves the abandonment of all personal and familial achievements. 
It involves the abandonment of all personal and familial achievements. You see, we like to latch on to things as if they in some way give us value. Or we like, especially within the local church, I believe, we really like to latch on to things because we think that it gives us either some type of control or some type of purpose or some type of power. And so what we like to do, and I'm speaking of we because I am included in that, I'm always tempted, if you will, to lean back on my personal attainments or the attainments of my grandpa, my great-grandpa, and my great-grandma for what I have and what I've done or who I am in Christ. Some people find their identity not in Jesus, but in the religion of the past of grandparents. And Paul is about to give us, if you will, his um, life story, and he wants us to see that if you're going to really experience Jesus, all that stuff has got to be set aside. All that stuff has got to be abandoned. You know, I, let me just use a funny illustration I heard in the preaching. I just, I can't get past this, being a real-life story. But an evangelist was preaching at a, um, at a church for revival, and he, um, before a service, he asked one of the deacons, he said, I would like to use your bathroom. And so he said, well, it's right down the hall on the left, so he goes in the bathroom, and he's about to open the door to, you know, where we'd use the bathroom. And, but he can't open it. And he said, upon closer investigation, it's welded shut. He said, I couldn't figure it out. So I used the bathroom. I came out and asked the dick. I said, let me ask you a question. Why is, why is the bathroom welded shut? He said, oh, Mr. So-and-so, he donated that commode when we built this church. And we just didn't have the heart after it broke to remove it, so we just welded the door shut. So the reason that people don't know Christ because we've got a shrine to a holy commode in the toilet. I mean, really. We latch on to these things. We've got a pew with somebody's name on it. We can't move that thing because it's got such and such's name on it. Hey, listen to me. All that stuff is going to burn. Give it to the kingdom of God and do what is necessary for advancement in the kingdom. You see, the, the apostle Paul had to have the same reckoning. He had to realize that regardless of how religious I used to be, regardless of all the achievements and the attainments that I've had, I've got to set it aside. Listen to his resume, if you will. Verse 2 through 7. He says, watch out. Now, that's a different translation to most people, but the reality is what Paul is trying to tell these people is watch out for these people. It's, it's a warning. He said, watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for the mutilation. For we of the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Who is he talking about to watch out for? He's really talking about watch out for those legalistic religion people that want to impose every little law, every little um, what they perceive to be biblical teaching on you to make you think you're right with God when it's got nothing to do with righteousness. What Paul is saying is, Watch out for the dogs. He's really speaking. He's using a term that the Israelites used for the Gentiles. And now Paul is using it for the Israelites. In other words, they are dirty, low-down nothings that are distracting from the gospel. That's what he's saying in our modern-day southern language. Dogs were not heralded, heralded then like they are in our world, right? I mean, we got a little puppy dog comes in our house. I mean, it's like our, you know, not just a little pest part of the family, man. Right? So we look at them a little higher up. 
than what they did back then. Back then, dogs were the lowest of the low animals. He says, beware the dogs of the evil workers, of the mutilation. Now, I'm not going to go into detail here, but what Paul is speaking against is those who we call Judaizers. And what they believed and what they taught was, not only do you have to come to faith and trust Jesus, but also if you're going to please God, if you're going to be right with God, then you have got to embrace the covenant of circumcision. I'll let you figure out what that is on your own. Most of us know what it is from the Old Testament. But it's a covenant with Abraham. And there was a battle, a theological battle in this time period. And Paul said, I want you to understand something. Let them go cut themselves. But that's not going to make you right with God. Beware, Paul says, of any teaching that replaces the grace and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's as quick as I can summarize that verse. And Paul says, for we're the circumcision. What is he talking about? He's not talking about the physical first circumcision in the Old Testament. He's talking about in Romans 2.29, the circumcision of the heart, whereby the Spirit of God has moved into an individual and cut away the flesh from the heart and given them the new covenant, a new heart, put his law in them where they desire now to obey God. In other words, let's just sum it up. He's talking about the new birth that John's talking about in John chapter 3 that no one enters into the kingdom of heaven unless they are born from above, born again. What is he, what's Paul talking about? Paul says, we are the true believers because we're not, and he says this later in this text, we're not depending upon the law. We're not depending on our ability to please God, but rather we're depending on the power of Almighty God to birth in us new life. That's the circumcision he's speaking of here. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoicing in Christ Jesus, and we don't have any confidence in the flesh. In other words, Paul says, Our abilities, our attainments must be abandoned. He's preaching the gospel. He's saying that these things these people are teaching to make you think you're right with God by doing some, some act of circumcision or by obeying the Sabbath where you can't walk a certain length on a Sabbath day, or some other kind of crazy law that the Pharisees made up and some of us make up from, some time, from time to time, Paul said those things do not make you right with God. But circumcision of the heart only comes from God Himself. And, and can I tell you this? This is a beautiful thing. The circumcision of the heart changes my wonder. You say, what does that mean? I used to want to. I used to want to do what I wanted to do, right? I used to want to do these things. But one day, Jesus Christ stepped down in my heart, and he's changed my wanter. I don't want to do those things anymore. I want to serve him. Amen? Man, I want to love him, and I want to obey him, and I want to serve him. He's changed my wanter. He's circumcised my heart, and he's given me new desires. That's what he's speaking of here. He says, we don't have any confidence in the flesh. We don't have any confidence in what we can do. Now listen to this. Verse 4. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, Paul says, I more so. In other words, Paul's saying, if you think you're right, if you think you're a good person, I more so. I mean, listen to what he says. Circumcised the eighth day, bam, obeyed the law. Of the stock of Israel, man, I'm, I'm, I'm a purebred. That's really what he's saying. I'm a pure blood. I'm an Israelite. If anybody ought to be right with God, it's an Israelite, right? I mean, that's what he was thinking. That's what they were thinking. 
of the tribe of Benjamin. Who was the tribe of Benjamin? It was a very special tribe of the nation of Israel that remained faithful to David and his kingdom, even in the division of the kingdoms. And so they were highly exalted in the, in the, um, in the Benjamites were. And so Paul's just saying, I want you to know that my bloodline, I'm from good stock, right? My granddaddy's 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 was a great guy. He was a godly man. He's a Benjamite. Paul's saying, that's who I am, coursing through my veins, the blood of Benjamin. A Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, Pharisee. In other words, concerning the law, I did everything to do it right. If I knew a law, I lived it. If I, if I was not supposed to walk more than 50 steps on the I'm telling you, I walked 43, is what Paul's saying. I did everything in my power to obey the law. And he says, concerning zeal, don't you listen to this, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. You say, how could that be right? How could that be a part of his resume and be a good thing? Because Paul had misplaced zeal. Paul thought that what the church was doing was blasphemous. And so he had such a zeal for God that when he thought the church was going against Yahweh, he persecuted the church. He cut off people's heads. He took them to prison, and he thought what he was doing was right. The point he's making here is that anyone can stand before God and have a clean, wonderful, if you will, awe-inspiring resume. Paul says, it would be me. I'm a religious man to the core. I've obeyed everything I know to obey. I am the perfect church member. But listen to what he says. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, Paul says, I was blameless. Verse 7, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss. For who? Christ. Hey, listen. Some of us are depending upon our biological heritage. And we think that for some reason, because my mama or my daddy or my grandfather or my grandmother brought me to church and I was baptized in church and I've been a part of a church all my life, then surely I'm right with God. Paul says, all that stuff I've kind of lost. In other words, I really believe he's saying, if I'm going to know Christ, it involves the absolute abandonment of all personal and familial achievements. I've got to set all that stuff aside and say, Christ, it's just you. <laughs> nothing else. I can do any, nothing. My bloodline don't matter. I'm abandoning those things for the gospel. I'm afraid that many church members and believers have so convinced themselves that because they've been baptized, because a preacher said, sure, son, we'll baptize you. They get baptized, and then they just think, well, I'm a believer. Hey, listen, let me just give you a little hint into, into biblical theology. Baptism saves no one. Baptism doesn't cleanse your sins. Church membership doesn't make you right with God. Teaching Sunday school makes no headway with pleasing God. The only way 
to know and experience true salvation is abandonment of all that you've ever attained and all that you think you have and say, that stuff is nothing. I'm absolutely submitting to Jesus Christ as Lord. Nothing to the cross I bring, but only to Him do I cling because it's Christ that I need. Paul says, I count all that stuff as loss that I know Christ. Listen, this evening, in a crowd this size, I just have to believe that some of you are depending upon the wrong thing to be right with God. You're like the Apostle Paul. No, you don't persecute the church. But you think that you're right with God because of your own attainments. I'm inviting you tonight. God's inviting you tonight to abandon those things and say, I'm embracing the Lord Jesus. Total, absolute abandonment from anything that I know to know Christ. The supreme value of knowing Paul supremely valued experiencing Jesus Christ as Lord and Master. Tell you something else I believe it includes. It not only involves the abandonment of my attainments or my family's attainments or my church membership or anything that I think I've done right. Now, by the way, making you being a Baptist doesn't make you right with God. And hey, listen, I've met a couple of Catholics that are right with God. I'm just, I have. I'm just sort of a joke and sort of not. A few Methodists around here are believers. That's a joke. They are. There's quite a few of them, by the way, right, Brother Herbert? You see, because denomination doesn't matter. <laughs> what matters is abandonment of everything for Jesus. By the way, I got many Methodist friends, many Catholic friends. That was a joke. Just a kind of like one of those things that you throw at people and they never catch. And it might have been just funny in my brain. That happens a lot, especially at home. <laughs> Y'all get that later. Anyway, he... I'm making the point that denomination doesn't matter. I know a lot of people who are Baptist-fed, Baptist-bred, and they're going to be Baptist-dead. They will be. Because it's not Baptist that makes me right with God. It's King Jesus and the new birth. Amen? Second of all, I think what we... It's not only an abandonment of all this attainment, but number two... He embraces the gracious gift of God's righteousness through faith. He embraces the gracious gift of God's righteousness through faith. Listen to verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Verse 9. And be found in Him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And so Paul wants us to understand that it is not by my works that I'm made right with God. When he uses the phrase righteousness, what Paul is meaning, and I think he picks this up in a wonderful way in the book of Romans, he is really speaking about the righteousness of God. You see... In short, here's our problem. Our problem is sin. 
And God's expectation is righteousness, perfection. God created us in a sinless world, made us sinless people, because He desired that we would experience the fullness and joy of knowing Him. And we sinned against Him. We plunged into sin. We became unrighteous people who could not fellowship with the righteous God. He created us for Himself, and we separated ourselves from Him. And so God sets out a plan to provide redemption. All throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's about God's plan of redemption for condemned, unrighteous, ungodly, sinful people. And so what God does, He sends His Son, Jesus Christ, and says He'll live perfectly because He's, if you will, He's of my nature. He is God in the flesh. He lives a perfect life. He willingly sacrifices Himself, arises from the grave, and ascends to heaven, sends the Spirit to live in us. Why does He do that? Because in a beautiful fashion, Paul picks this up in Corinthians, He wants to take us as sinful people, and He wants to take our sin and place it on the cross with Jesus Christ and then take His own righteousness that we've never deserved or earned and He wants to clothe us in His righteousness so that when He looks down upon us, He sees not us, but He sees Jesus Christ and His righteousness. And so when Paul speaks here of not having my own righteousness, he's being literal. He's saying, I don't have anything in me that God should desire. I have nothing about my life that pleases or satisfies God. There's nothing I can do to satisfy the cost for sin. And so what happens is God then, if you will, through faith, wants to clothe me, place me in Christ, and give me His righteousness. And so Paul's embracing this. And if you don't, if you don't know the Apostle Paul, it's hard to pick up on this. Because Paul is, very, and by the way, in context, he tells us, I thought I was a righteous man. I thought I was pleasing to God. And then all of a sudden, he sees Jesus Christ in all of his glory. And he says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Paul says, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus. Why are you persecuting me? Paul has an immediate reckoning with the resurrected Christ. And he, in that moment, recognizes I'm not righteous at all. He sees Jesus and he recognizes his unrighteousness. And it wrecks his life. And he says, I need the righteousness that only God can give me. From that individual comes, for by grace we've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Because Paul recognizes that he doesn't need the righteousness that the law provides because it fails through the flesh, but he needs the righteousness that only God himself can provide and clothe us in. And so if you get this image of this guy in your life who's living a good life, who's doing what he thinks God wants him to do in this moment, he's describing in his life the event or the idea that he's not only seeing himself as a righteous man when he meets Christ and he immediately has to abandon his own attainments, but he also embraces the grace of God because he knows he hadn't earned it and he hadn't deserved it, but it's the grace of God that's pouring out upon him his own righteousness, and Paul must not earn it, but by faith he submits to it. Does that make sense? 
By faith he's believing that what God says is true is true and I'm abandoning everything and I'm laying it down at the foot of Jesus Christ. Hey, listen, even the abandonment of all personal attainments and church membership and everything that you think makes you right with God, even the abandonment of that takes faith because we are so sold out that it's something we can do when it's not. By the way, believer, even after you come to faith in Christ, the only thing you can do to please God is love and serve Him. The only thing you can do to please God is by faith alone. You can work yourself busy in a local church doing everything everybody wants you to do. When all the while, God's on the sideline saying, hey, won't you back off and won't you adopt some kids for the gospel? Won't you back off and go to the nations for the gospel? Won't you pick up your family and move to a distant land that's dark and dismal and has no spiritual light and let your family be a light for the gospel? You see... Paul recognized that only by faith and only embracing the grace of God by faith could he actually be right in the eyes of God. And by the way, this shouldn't be surprising to you. Paul's probably in his 30s when he meets Christ. I don't know his exact age. Somebody might correct me after service, and that's fine because I really want to know because I cannot remember in this moment. But all of his life, all Paul desired was to be right with God. He didn't want anything else. All he wanted, all of his life, was for him to know that God looked down upon him and said, Paul, I'm pleased with you. But he never had that satisfaction. And in this one shining moment with Jesus, Paul abandons everything and says, Wow, it's not my works. It's not my, it's not my being a, a member of the Baptist church because it wasn't anything it wasn't because I'm a Pharisee, but it's because God chose in His grace to send His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for my sin and then to birth in me new life. That's how I can be right with God. And He wants people to see this. He wants the, the church at Philippi to be rem, rem, reminded that if you're going to experience the fullness of who Christ is, the only way that can occur is through faith. Amen? Is by me embracing... And listen... I really don't want to be long-winded, but it's like just my nature. I just want you to know and understand what the text says. i got a passion for people to understand the Bible. Listen, faith is me embracing what God says. We have this idea that faith is something I conjure up, man. i, I got faith. That's not faith. That's craziness. Faith is me looking at the Bible and saying, in spite of what everyone else is telling me, I believe that the Bible is true. I believe that what God says is true, and I'm going to live it out if nobody else does. That's faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. we got a lot of believers who are ignorant about the Bible, and they think they have faith, and they don't, because they don't know Christ. They don't know His Word. They don't. Some people say, I, listen... How does that guy do that? I'll tell you how he believes the Bible. And I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about people who do things that just seem so, so unfathomable. You know why? Because they believe the Bible. They believe that if God said it, he's going to do it, I'm going to live like he's already doing it for the glory of God. You see, what Paul believed was that by grace God had wrapped him in his righteousness 
And it wasn't his attainments, it wasn't the law, but he had embraced the grace of God in such a way that he knew that if I obey God, then I will only die when God wants me to. Seriously. If I obey God, then he'll be pleased with me. And if I obey God, then I'll be satisfied in Christ, and I'll enjoy the pleasures of Christ, and I'll enjoy fellowship with my Creator. And it doesn't matter what the world says or what the world does or what the culture expects from me. What matters is that I'm pleasing God. Hey, listen, one of the hardest lessons I've learned in my life, and I hope some of you have learned this, is that it doesn't matter. It does not matter what your pastor thinks you ought to be doing. What matters is, right, Brother Herbert? He'll agree with me. I know him. At least that well anyway. What matters is what Jesus Christ says you ought to be doing. What matters is what the Bible says. That's faith. Paul says that, and by the way, he uses the word twice in this text, in this one verse. Not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith. Hey, listen, I tell our people all the time, don't do it because I say do it. Because I can be wrong. If you don't believe me, ask my wife. I can be wrong a lot. But I'll tell you what won't be wrong is the Scriptures. I believe this Bible to the point that God will use it for His glory. And I believe that what I preach is true and that if I will do what He tells me to do by faith in Christ, then I don't, I, I don't need to worry because I'm righteous in His eyes. Hey, listen, one day when I stand before the living God in judgment, I'm not going to be able to say, God, I preached revivals. It's not going to matter. All I have is say, God, I'm in Christ. He's my advocate. I have nothing else to bring, God. Just Jesus. Hey, listen. Have you embraced the gift of grace of salvation? Have you embraced the fact that it's nothing you can do, but it's a grace gift from God? By the way, in context... Because that's the way you ought to study the Bible. If you go back in chapter 1, remember what I said last night? It's not only a grace gift for you to believe in Jesus, but also a grace gift to suffer for Him, right? Paul is really continuing to build on that. And he's saying that it's a grace gift from God that we can experience righteousness through faith. This is a statement I said, and I'll go to my last point. Listen, one must lose himself or herself in Christ, in order to enjoy the pleasure of being satisfied in Him. You must lose yourself in Christ. How do you lose yourself in Christ? You abandon everything, and by grace and by faith, you embrace Jesus, and you lose your identity in Him. Hey, one, one last phrase. No man is ever fully alive until he's fully alive in Christ. A famous theologian said it. I don't remember who it was. I just remember reading it. But it's absolutely true. You know what we experience when we're in Christ? Fully alive. That's what Paul was experiencing because he embraced by faith the righteousness of God. Third and lastly, listen to this. 
verse 8 through 11. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence or the superior or um, I don't even know that Paul really, um, if we could translate how, how exulting and how excellent Paul is really trying to express himself here. But he says, I count all these things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as unspeakable filth that I may gain Christ. And then in verse 10, that I may know him, experience him in the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. I believe Paul says this, that if we are going to experience Christ, it comes with recognizing the supreme value of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. Remember what I said at the beginning of of this lesson, this sermon. We value many things, right? I mean, we value vehicles, we value money, we value bank accounts, we value houses and land. But how much do we value Christ? How valuable is He really to us? Paul is saying that He is supremely valuable to Him. That knowing Christ was so important that everything else He counted as rubbish. He uses a word, and the idea of excellence means a surpassing worth or value. And it's almost like Paul cannot even really communicate how supremely valuable Jesus is to him. Paul is communicating that Christ is all that I want to be and all that I want to know. I could care less about anything else. Everything else, Paul says, is only a tool, it's only a resource to be used for the world to know Christ. And so it's supremely valuable. And so much so that even though Paul was an, an intellect. He had um, broad um, education. If, if he was alive today, they would say that he was one of the most brilliant scholars around. He had a position in the um, Church of Israel or the Is- Israelite religion because he's a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I mean, this guy was high on the rank. He had position, he had power, he had money, he had all those things and education. And Paul said this, I count all that stuff as unspeakable filth. I count that stuff, and really you you could say it this way, I count it as human waste compared to the supreme value of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. In other words, Paul's saying, my education, my money, my position means absolutely nothing compared to the knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ. Now listen, is Paul saying live ignorantly? Nope. Is Paul saying don't make money? It's not what he's saying. Paul saying don't have a high position. It's not what he's saying. What Paul is saying, though, is when those things get in the way of knowing and serving Christ, then they need to be let go of. Because it's more valuable and more beautiful and more pleasing and more satisfying to experience Jesus Christ the Lord. Hey, listen. You're talking about humbling yourself before the throne of God is saying, you know what, all the years I spent in education, and I feel like I've spent a lot, and I'm still not very smart. But all that time is like saying, you know what, that stuff is human waste. It's worth nothing in knowing Jesus Christ. Because Paul says he is supremely valuable in knowing him. In other words, Paul said, I'd rather not have that stuff and have Jesus. Have you been to that place in your life? Have you so embraced Jesus? Have you so seen Christ in all of His glory and all of His beauty in such a way 
that you value him supremely above any attainments or anything that you have or even that you desire? Do you desire Christ to be glorified above and beyond your personal goals and attainments? That's what it means to get lost in Jesus. Paul says, verse 10, that I may know him. And remember what I said. Paul is not speaking from an intellectual standpoint. He's speaking from an experiential standpoint. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Now listen to this. And the fellowship of his suffering. That word can really also be translated the partnership. Partnership, fellowship, community. These words tend to have, not community, but partnership and fellowship and a few other words tend to come together in this word. What Paul is communicating is this. I want to know and experience the sufferings of Christ. Not that he wants to go to the cross. Paul's not saying I want to be hung upside down or I want to be crucified. What Paul is saying is I want to know and experience Christ to such an extent that I face and experience what my Savior faces. I want to be, I don't know how best to say this, but say I want to be so intimate with Jesus that every day of my life I feel the weight of what Jesus felt walking in a dark and wicked world, bearing the light of the gospel. I want to experience it because the supreme knowledge of Christ is worth me suffering to know and to understand who he is. You see, it's supremely valuable to him. He wants to experience the sufferings of Jesus. Not that he wants to go to the cross and die for people's sins, but that he wants to be so associated with the gospel that he realizes that the world will reject and bring its wrath upon him because they rejected the Savior of the world. They're also going to reject his followers. And so Paul is so expressing how valuable Jesus is to him that it's worth him suffering for the gospel to experience the beauty and the glory of who Christ is. He wants to know him intimately. He wants to know him intellectually. He wants to know Jesus in every part of his experience. The power of his resurrection stink bug, sorry. The power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Now listen to this. Being conformed to his death. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. I don't know how to convey to you what I believe Paul is experiencing and communicating to these people. He's urging them to be locked arm in arm, hand in hand for the gospel. He's urging them to set aside their personal endeavors. He's urging them to be aware that there's going to be distractions. There's going to be legalistic teachers. There are going to be false teachers. There are going to be worldly individuals that seek to draw your attention away. Beware of that. Know it's there. Experience Jesus Christ and make him supremely valuable in your life. Paul says, I want to know him in such a way that I want to experience suffering with him and for him. And I want to experience the power of the resurrection. I don't even know how to explain that. How do you experience the power of the resurrection? The only thing I know is this, that Paul wanted the power to continue to live faithfully to the gospel 
in the face of suffering and persecution. Is that us? Are you supremely valuing Jesus Christ above everything? Is he worth more to you than fame and fortune, than being known in your community, than the money that you might be able to make, the education that you can attain? Is he of more value to you than being recognized for some wonderful work you may do in the church? Have you seen Jesus in such a light that everything else compared to him is human waste. Paul saw Christ and he said it is of supreme value to know Jesus. I'll tell you what I believe. This is what I believe the Bible teaches. That those folks who have seen Jesus for who he is cannot be helped but be wrecked by his beauty and glory and be changed in such a fashion that they will desire him above all else. Have you been wrecked by Jesus? Have you seen him in such a fashion? In such a fashion? In such a fashion? In such a fashion? In such a fashion?